This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the collapse of the Super Committee on the Budget. As you know, just before Thanksgiving, congressional leaders admitted that there would be no deal to reduce the U.S. budget deficit by $1.2 trillion over 10 years. Although this was not a surprise, it has significant ramifications for our nation. In this first perspective, I want to place this entire discussion into a broader understanding. First of all, I think it's important for us to address the role of the president in this committee and all that's been a part of these discussions over the last months. It is manifestly clear that the president chose to remain quite disengaged from this entire process of debt reduction by the super committee. His campaign leaders and his White House staff have declared that the president believes that the Republicans will never agree to raise taxes on the wealthy to balance any spending cuts, though he will let the voters decide next November. He will campaign by contrasting his balanced approach to put the nation on solid footing to the, with the Republicans' anti-tax reliance on spending cuts, especially for Social Security and Medicare. His strategy of not engaging Congress and of remaining aloof from the discussion is dangerous for him politically and, perhaps far more importantly, for the nation. In my judgment, President Obama is failing to lead on a serious threat to the nation's future, the mounting federal debt. The historian Robert Dalek argues that Obama is borrowing from the strategy adopted by Harry Truman in 1948. Truman blamed a do-nothing Congress for the nation's ills and thereby defied all expectations and won re-election. But I'm not certain that will work this time. There is one haunting reality that the president cannot ignore, and I believe the voters will not ignore either. President Obama appointed the Simpson-Bowles Commission, which studied the debt situation of the United States extensively and proposed a completely bipartisan approach to reducing the federal deficit. And the President of the United States, who appointed the commission and empowered them to arrive at a solution, completely ignored their recommendations. The Simpson-Bowles Commission was a sterling example of bipartisanship. Indeed, Warren Buffett declared, I think what happened with Simpson-Bowles was an absolute tragedy. They work like the devil for 10 months. They compromise. They bring people as far apart as Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat and Republican Senator Tom Coburn, to get them to sign on, and then they are totally ignored. I think that is a travesty. It's an extended quote from Warren Buffett. In fact, Thomas Com Friedman has gone so far as to advocate that Obama declare that he made a mistake in spurning his own deficit reduction commission and that he is now adopting Simpson-Bowles as the long-term fiscal plan to be phased in. 
Now, he's controversial, and for him to be able to declare that is shocking, quite honestly. I doubt very much if President Obama is going to take Friedman's advice. But the heart of Sibson Bowles is substantial tax reform and revenue increases. There's a gasoline tax, there's deep defense cuts, there's cutbacks to both Social Security and Medicare. The so-called deficit plan that Obama presented in September was watered down and no one took it seriously. Charles Krauthammer, the columnist, has correctly argued raising revenue through tax reform, as we saw in Simpson Bowles, is better than simply raising rates, which Democrats insist upon with near religious fervor. It is more economically efficient because it eliminates credits, carve-outs, and deductions that grossly misallocate capital. Simply raising the tax rates is a perverse way to solve our problems. Raising tax rates needlessly slows economic growth by penalizing work and by retaining inefficiency-inducing loopholes. It also, in terms of what Obama has proposed, his coveted repeal of the Bush tax cuts, could yield the Treasury at the very most $80 billion a year offsetting two cents on the dollar of government spending. And really, finally, hiking tax rates ignores the real drivers of debt, which, as President Obama himself has acknowledged, are entitlements. In fact, it seems to me that President Obama is out of touch with reality. Last February, he presented to Congress a budget that would have actually increased spending. It was voted down by the Senate in the 97-0 to zero vote contrast, the Republicans in the House passed a budget that cut $5.8 trillion of spending over 10 years. To no one's surprise, the Senate did not accept that proposal from the House. We have a well-thought-through proposal, Simpson-Bowles, on the table. Let that be the starting point. It is bipartisan. It accomplishes real tax reform with a concomitant revenue increase and significantly reduces entitlement costs, which is the real problem with the deficit. Why will the president not lead on this? Well, the answer is a political answer. He is hoping that the voters will side with him next November. He's hoping that the voters will reject Simpson-Bowles and permit him and his party another four years of ignoring the need for meaningful tax reform and meaningful substantive changes in our entitlement programs. Obama is not leading, and the nation will suffer more because of that. A second comment. What is often overlooked is that the deficit-raising deal that Obama struck with Congress last summer has automatic adjustments built into the agreement. By law, the Super Committee's failure triggers new caps on spending, cutting approximately $1.2 trillion from the military, education, health care, and other priorities budgets over 10 years, and it will begin next fall, fall of 2012. The combined impact of higher tax rates and less spending would reverse the growth of annual deficits beginning in 2013, reducing by more than half the current $1.3 trillion gap between revenue and spending at the federal budget. 
That was part of the deal from last summer, and it's automatic. Of course, unless Congress passes new legislation undoing this deal, which is a real possibility. In addition, there are several other key congressional decisions that loom in the near future. Congress must decide whether to extend a payroll tax break for workers and continued supplemental benefits for long-term unemployed, both of which are scheduled to expire at the end of this year, 2011. The consensus now is, and I just read about that this morning, is that Congress will probably expend the payroll tax break. I'm not sure about the supplemental unemployment extension. We'll see. The tax break reduces the amount that workers must pay for Social Security. The extended benefits provide support for 3.5 million Americans who've been out of a job for longer than 26 weeks. In addition, and this will be far more provocative, Congress must decide by the end of next year, 2012, the future of the Bush tax cuts. All of these decisions are, of course, wrapped around the poisonous political culture of Washington, D.C. Insightfully, the columnist David Brooks observes that both political parties have, quote, developed minority mentalities, a phrase from David Brooks. By this, Brooks means that their main fear is that they will lose their identity and cohesion if their members compromise with the larger world. They erect clear and rigid boundaries, separating themselves from their enemies. In a hostile world, they erect rules and pledges and become hypervigilant about deviationism. They are more interested in protecting their special interests than converting outsiders. They slowly encase themselves in an epistemic cocoon. They are all the words of David Brooks. Now, the result of what his argument about both parties having minority mentalities is stagnation. Nothing is getting done. Each party is too weak to push its own agenda and too encased by its own cocoon to agree to compromise. In short, America today lacks decisive leadership, both at the executive level and at the legislative level. This dismal failure of leadership is costing our nation dearly, and we are slipping quickly into the loss of influence and power around the world. Our children and our grandchildren will pay dearly for this vacuum of leadership at all levels of government. That's why it has caused me to think perhaps we are simply getting the leaders we deserve. Leaders who cannot work together, who are so focused on their selfish, self-centered agenda that they cannot work together for the greater good of the nation. Again, perhaps we are getting the very leaders that we deserve as a nation. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to completely shift gears and think with you about the role of parents in educating children. Every three years, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development conducts exams as a part of the Program for International Student Assessment, which tests 15-year-olds in the world's leading industrialized nations on reading comprehension and the ability to learn what they've 
uh, to use what they've learned in math and science. So it's reading, math, and science. Compared with children in Singapore, Finland, Shanghai, China, for example, America's 15-year-olds have not been doing very well. This caused Tom Friedman, the columnist, to begin to find out what is going on with this testing. So he spent some time with Andreas Schleicher, who oversees the exams for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And what he, that is Schleicher, and his team did is they did an investigation of what is behind the culture and, and, and classroom of children that are being tested in these exams. They principally looked at their families. Beginning with four nations in 2006 and adding 14 more in 2009, this team, led by Andreas Schleicher, went to parents of 5,000 students and interviewed them about how they raised their children and then compared that with test results. What was the result of this investigation? Let me make five key points. One, Schleicher reported to Friedman that 15-year-old students whose parents often read books with them during their first year of primary school showed markedly higher scores in 2009 than students whose parents read to them infrequently or not at all. The performance advantage among students whose parents read to them in their early years is evident regardless of the family's socioeconomic background. Parents engaging with their children is strongly associated with better performance on these assessment exams. Number two, Schleicher explained that just asking your children how was their day and showing genuine interest in their learning that they're doing can have the same impact as hours of private tutoring. It's something every parent can do, no matter what their education, no matter what their level or social background. Number three, students whose parents reported that they had read a book with their child every day or almost every day during the first year of primary school have markedly higher scores than students whose parents did not. On average, that score difference is 25 points, which is the equivalent of well over half a school year. Number four. Schleicher reports that on average, the score point difference in reading that is associated with parental involvement is largest when parents read a book with their child, when they talk about things they've done during their day, and when they tell the stories to their children. Finally, a complementary report done by the National School Boards Association Center for Public Education reports that monitoring homework, making sure children get to school, Rewarding their efforts, talking up the idea of going to college, are most likely to have an impact on academic achievement at school. In addition, this study by the National School Boards Association found that getting parents involved with their children's learning at home is a more powerful driver of achievement than parents attending PTA, school board meetings, volunteering in classrooms, participating in fundraising projects, or showing up at back-to-school nights. Dear people, our culture has spent trillions of dollars since 1965 on building expensive buildings, hiring well-qualified teachers, and providing well-written textbooks. But none of this is as valuable as parents who care. We need 
good teachers. Of that, there's no doubt. We need good classrooms with all the technology. Of that, there's no doubt. We need textbooks that are sound and well-written. Of that, there's no doubt. But without parents who are engaged with their children, none of this will matter very much. Nearly 3,500 years ago, Moses instructed the parents of Israel to teach and model the things of God to their children. He did that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. That sound advice from Scripture is still relevant today. If the family is dysfunctional, the children will suffer. That is a self-evident axiom. We don't need to do any more studies. We don't need to do any case studies, longitudinal studies, or analysis. This is a self-evident axiom, and we see it in our culture everywhere. If the family is dysfunctional, the children will suffer, and you will see it in their performance at school. Education, in my judgment, and I root this in Scripture, is a cooperative effort between the school and the home. When the home does not exist, the schools will not be able to do it all. Increasingly, that is where so much of American education is today. We expect the schools to do it all, and they cannot. In fact, and I'm speaking now as a Christian leader, I believe quite strongly that true education is a cooperative effort between the public school, the parents, and the church. That institutional triad provides the needed framework for successful education. But our postmodern culture will not permit the support of the church in this triad, so it's up to schools and parents. And when the parents are there, are not there, when the parents are not engaged, the schools will not be able to do the job. We need good teachers, but we also need good parents. And as a Christian, I would add we need good churches. We should not be surprised when we read of the growing failure rates of our children on assessment exams. It's not all the fault of the teachers. It is a miserable failure of so many parents. God declared that 3,500 years ago. Perhaps it is time for us to reacquaint ourselves with his paradigm for success. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I want to return to the Middle East and think with you about Israel and Iran. The International Atomic Energy Agency published a report on the 8th of November on Iran's nuclear program. The IAEA says it has serious concerns, and I'm quoting from this report, serious concerns regarding possible military dimensions to Iran's nuclear program. After assessing carefully and critically the extensive information available to it, the agency finds the information to be overall credible. That Iran has carried out activities to the development of a nuclear explosive device. Close that quote from the IAEA's report of 8 November. A 12-page appendix to the report provides a compelling narrative of Iran's progress towards becoming a nuclear power. 
magazine The Economist reports, it says that Iran created computer models of nuclear explosions, 2008-2009, and conducted experiments on nuclear triggers. The report says that the simulations focused on how shock waves from conventional explosives could compress the spherical fuel at the core of a nuclear device, and which then starts a train reaction that ends up in explosion. The report goes on to state that Iran went beyond theoretical studies and built a large containment vessel at one of its military bases in 2000, year 2000. And this was to test the feasibility of explosive compression. It calls such tests strong indicators of possible weapon development. Western intelligence sources now believe that Iran has enough highly enriched uranium to build at least one nuclear weapon within a year and could be followed rapidly by several more. What is not known is whether Iran can mount miniaturized warheads on its ballistic missiles, which have a range of 1,200 miles. Obviously, all of these developments pose a mortal threat to Israel. And all of this has raised the possibility of Israel attacking Iranian nuclear facilities, its facilities at Natanz, Atak, and Boucher. Why would Israel be contemplating such radical action now? There are perhaps four reasons. One, Iran is rapidly moving centrifuges to its once secret site at Fordow, buried deep inside a mountain. Two, Syria's internal chaos may take Iran's most important regional ally out of the political game. Three, the departure of America's forces from Iraq removes both a focus for Iranian retaliation and a constraint on America. And finally, the weakened political clout of President Obama may actually aid Israel, for Obama needs the Jewish vote if he's going to hope for re-election. Perhaps for that reason, he would support Israel's attempt to destroy Iranian facilities. Twice, Israel has destroyed two of its enemies who are building nuclear weapons, Iraq in 1981 and Syria in 2007. Both were very successful. Israel legitimately fears the theocratic regime of Iran that embraces the Shia tradition of martyrdom. The fears of Israel are genuine. The world community currently seems paralyzed in stopping Iran's nuclear weapons program. And if the world cannot or will not do it, Israel has little choice but a preemptive attack on Iran. Such an attack may not be imminent, but it is increasingly more probable. For that reason, year 2012 may end up being a most interesting year. Things are reaching a critical point in Iran in its nuclear weapon development program and in Israel as it watches its mortal enemy Iran get capability to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. This is a critical moment in human history one of these nations, Iran or Israel, is going to reach that boiling point most likely in year 2012. Keep your eyes on the Middle East. God's program continues to unfold. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.